The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. This will be a great conversation with Adam, who's built a hell of a following on YouTube. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jealous, Adam, of the work you've done there, but it's tremendous uh, effort, and we'll talk about that. This will be available on all your favorite podcast platforms under the Lead Lag Live banner, Spotify, Apple, all that good stuff, as well as available on my own YouTube channel at Lead Lag Report. With all that said, my name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Adam Taggart. Adam, for those who are not familiar with you. Introduce yourself. Uh, who are you? How'd you get interested in markets, involved in the social media side, and what are you doing with Wealthion? Okay, great. I'll try to make that a quick answer. And first, let me apologize for the quality of my voice here, folks. I came down with a, a head cold this week, and it decided to move into my throat this morning. So hopefully you can hear me okay. Michael, thanks for the kind words. Uh, I've got to admit to a little Twitter envy with you. I think you're up at about 700,000 Twitter followers. That's pretty amazing. It's amazing until you realize that only results in more haters, uh, which is not easy. <laughs> at least on YouTube, yeah, you can kind of control it. Okay, good point. Well, very quickly, I worked on Wall Street very briefly early in my career. Coming out of college, was there long enough to know that the culture there wasn't a great fit for me and kind of gave me a front row seat to how a lot of the big banks they really exist for their own benefit, not really that for their clients and certainly not for society. So I, I, I left, I went and got my, while I was there, the internet revolution happened. So I went and worked in Silicon Valley. And then when the great financial crisis hit, I had been reading a lot of the online people who have now become a lot more prominent, who were worried, you know, warning about both a housing bubble, but a larger, just sort of bad policy leading to asset bubbles that then obviously resulted in the the financial crisis. And after that period of time, I decided, you know, get another person to use. Uh, at that point, I was a VP at Yahoo. And getting another person to use Yahoo Mail or getting another person to play Yahoo Fantasy Sports on their phone just wasn't making the kind of difference that I wanted to make in the world. I was convinced by having listened to these people who warned about the issues that then led to the, the crisis, that there was a lot of information out there that the average person just wasn't being given through the mainstream financial media. So I went and I, I founded a, a media company that talked a lot about this. It had a, had a kind of a broader spectrum of sort of general life resilience of which financial resilience was, was part of the offering. And over time, I realized you know, the, the one point of commonality that got everybody's attention was talking to them about how to build wealth responsibly. 
Everybody has a wallet. Everybody has a, a retirement they hope to enjoy someday. Everybody has people in their life they want to take care of. And so I found that that was really the primary door to engage with people on. So I wanted to really lean into that. And that's a long-winded way of answering why I created Wealthion, which very simply is to help people fund their life goals. And the intent is to give them the information to be able to make better informed decisions about how to do that. And then whenever possible to connect them with relevant solutions to help them do that. And so really what Wealthion does is it, it gives people, uh, I interview, I do about five or six interviews a week, pretty similar to you, Michael. And my job is to try to give the average investor access to what the experts and the insiders are thinking and what they're seeing coming down the road so that the average investor has a better chance to see where the puck is going and to be able to position themselves for it in advance. And then we can talk maybe more about this a little bit later, but when we have relevant solutions to put in front of people to help them accelerate their progress and towards positioning themselves smartly, we will do that too. I feel like building wealth responsibly is at the opposite <clears throat> end of the spectrum of what the traditional financial media does, right? Um, Absolutely. And I say that because you can kind of see why. I mean, why is it that there's a show called Fast Money? It's because people get addicted to the quick gains, and that's what often gets ratings. How do you balance the issue of trying to get viewership and interest in a responsible way when there is this natural human tendency to want to go for the more outlandish, emotional type of extreme things when it comes to investing? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, the way in which I've chosen to pursue this is just to not to play that game. So I don't know if you've had many behavioral economists on your program, Michael, but they're fascinating to talk to because they basically underscore exactly what you're saying, which is you would think humans would make exceptionally rational decisions around money because it's so quantifiable. It's just numbers. We make absolutely irrational, terrible decisions oftentimes around money because our emotions are driving uh, the game because we are human animals at the end of the day. And so a huge part of it really is just trying to take the emotion and the sensationalism out of it and to try to you know, really give people frameworks to follow so that they're being forced more to look at data and to make sort of a struct, take a structured sort of sy systemic system approach to it versus being influenced by what's hot today or what's dropping right now. And a big part of what you'll hear me probably reiterate a lot in this conversation is the one of the very best ways to be able to protect yourself from those pitfalls is to work with a professional financial advisor who is highly experienced, you know, years of seasoning, has lived through a lot of different market cycles, who studies and appreciates the, many of the macro issues I'm sure you and I are going to talk about here, because it's really their job to help you come up with a plan and then help you execute the plan. And whenever your emotions start getting the better of you to want to change the plan, it's to sit down and say, okay, well, let's have a rational discussion. Has anything in the fundamentals changed that merits us changing the plan here? Or are you just getting driven by a short-term emotion here? We just need to wait for it to pass. All right, so you had mentioned the culture of working at some of the big banks. I'd argue that there's a there's a Twitter, FinTwit culture, and there's maybe a YouTube finance culture. And both, from my experience, seem to be pretty different. Twitter is much more reactive and, I'd argue, less thoughtful in the way people tend to think about markets, whereas with YouTube and videos, right, you can get long-form conversations and get into kind of a deep dive a conversation with different thought leaders. Yes. Which, which do you find is is probably a better avenue for most people to – 
learn from. I've jokingly said to people that DM me on Twitter, the best thing I should do is what when it comes to learning. And my response is don't look at Twitter at all. <laughs> I, want hear, I want to hear your take on sort of the differences of platforms for learning. Yeah, that's a great question, actually. And I agree with you. I think if you are, if you're there for education, YouTube is a great platform for that. You, know, you get a chance to really dive deeply into situations, especially you know, get the nuances from these experts. Because everyone's always looking for the quick soundbite or the headline. That's a terrible way to base your investment you know, strategies on. And like everything in life, you know, it's mostly shades of gray. And YouTube really helps you roll up your sleeves and dig into that. And you can go back and rewatch and all that type of stuff. Twitter, I, I think, is really useful sort of once you're at the intermediate stage. Because it's more like the, the public square where you get a lot of debates going on. And it's really, I think it can be really instructive to listen to two very smart people, you know, debate the, the data back and forth. But you kind of have to have enough background to be able to filter out the people that are just trying to be sensational or talking their book. Or if you don't have enough of a grounding, you don't really know, you know, <laughs> how to refute the different sides of the debate. It can be just very easy to get swayed by whoever, you know, is shouting the most. But I, I find it myself living in this space, you know, all day long, I find it a great way to have my thinking challenged and especially to pick up on new trends, new developments. You definitely see those emerging first on Twitter. And so if you're just confining yourself to YouTube, you are basically sort of listening with a delay to the activity. But yeah, to your point, I, I think you know, don't don't wade into the Twitter space until you feel like you've got a good solid footing under your, your feet in terms of understanding the basics of how things go on. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I think part of it is also, and maybe I'm wrong on this, is that it's probably a lot harder to build a thoughtful following on YouTube if you're anonymous than if you're on Twitter, right? You see a lot of these kind of anonymous Twitter accounts that have huge followings. You don't know if the the person has any credibility. You don't know anything about them. But at least on YouTube, there's some degree of accountability because you know who the person is, or at least you hope you do. Yeah, yeah. There are people with big accounts who go by a moniker, but it's still their face, you know, in front of them. So yeah, no, I would agree with that. All right. Let, let's talk about how you go about doing what you do. I give you a lot of credit because I know that that grind. I mean, I'm very basic. I basically have a, you know, an Excel spreadsheet where I'm tracking guests I want to book out a month in time, right? And I'm one by one grinding. I don't have anybody else that's helping me trying to get these conversations going through Twitter. What What's your process? How do you go about finding guests? And did you have you found it easier or harder to do interviews the more you've done them? Okay, well, definitely easier the more I've done them for a couple of reasons. One, um, as I'm sure you've learned through this process, it's fun to talk to a kindred spirit here, Michael. The, the more you do them, the more you kind of find your voice and the more you, you, you know, get comfortable with techniques and tactics that kind of help draw out the guest and, you know, create a really good discussion. But also the more you do it, the more your audience tells you what they want to see, right? So 
if you're wise and you listen to what your audience is telling you, it becomes a lot easier to start targeting topics and guests because you know you've got your finger on the pulse of what your audience is looking for. They're going to basically point the direction out to you. So that that part's been definitely the more I've done this, the easier it's gotten. Also, too, the word you know begins to get out. And it becomes a little bit less of a pull trying to bring big names into your orbit. And uh, it begins to start being a little bit more of a push where they start knocking on your door and saying, hey, you know, can I be on your channel? And that's really nice when, when that happens. I'm sorry. What was the first part of your question? Well, no, hold on, hold on, but I do want to actually continue with that because that's, that's interesting. So the, the challenge that I myself find is it becomes very easy to ask the same kind of macro questions, right? You kind of fall into routine and it's – I find it a little bit challenging to try to keep the conversations fresh. Obviously, you can bring in you know, headlines and news, but there aren't that many sort of big topics that aren't already covered, right? So I, I think that's sort of the issue. How do you keep it? How do you keep it unique, guest to guest? Yeah. Okay, that's a great question too. So most of the time, I will usually through Twitter or just a news article. You know, I see a guest that I want to have on the program make a really interesting point. And I think, you know what, let's drill into that. The way I sort of think about it is, is if you're trying to understand the financial landscape, it is a jigsaw puzzle with many, many different pieces. And I really try, I, I, you know, I should have said this at the beginning of our conversation, Michael. I really just sort of see myself as the average, as the avatar for the average curious-minded viewer. I don't necessarily bring any particularly sophisticated or unique way of looking at the world. I'm just trying to understand how we build wealth in this you know, increasingly uncertain financial environment in which we find ourselves. And so, you know, I'm trying to understand this myself just the way that I imagine most of my viewers are. And so what I'm trying to do is just bring in as many people as I can who I think sort of have at least one or several pieces to this puzzle. And my goal of each interview is to add at least one new piece to the puzzle with that interview. And, you know, to your point, there, there are a lot of topics that come up all the time. We'll talk about Fed policy, we'll talk about where we think inflation's going or risk of recession for next year or whatever. But again, I'm, I'm always bringing the guest in with at least one unique pointed question around whatever piece I think they have based upon what I heard them say on Twitter or saw what they said in an interview. And then too, there is benefit in visiting some of these topics frequently because everybody sees them you know, slightly differently given their background. You know, an economist will give you a very different answer in general in terms of where they think uh, economic growth is going versus a portfolio manager versus a research analyst. And I do find it useful to, to get the perspective from those different disciplines. And, and one of the things that I find really useful is when you have people who have different disciplines, different backgrounds, different approaches, and yet they're coming up with the same conclusions, I find that that's usually where you can lean a little bit harder into those outlooks, right? You can say, okay, if this is, if this is a conclusion that multiple people with you know, various different approaches are still coming up with the same conclusion, I can place a higher probability on this happening going forward. How much do you prep when you do these kind of conversations? And I ask that uh, because I think there's an interesting dynamic of having it be video versus audio. So usually when I do these spaces, I have a notepad and I'm listening and I'm writing down keywords and trying to, you know, kind of branch off conversations based on that. I rarely really kind of ever prepare too much, certainly beforehand. You come across very thoughtful. I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you have a sort of set agenda or set questions or is it more just being present and let the conversation go where it goes? That's another great question. That's why I'm really enjoying talking with you, Michael. 
because you're asking questions that very few other interviewers have ever asked me. And it's, it's fun to compare notes with a fellow craftsman who does interviews. I do a, a moderate amount of preparation. So like I said, I know why I'm bringing the guest in. Like I have a sense of the key topic I want them to talk about, the, the question that the interview is going to, the axis that the interview is going to revolve around. But then I do, I create what I call an arc, which is basically sort of a story arc of the topics that I want to address in the conversation with the guest. I usually, you know, pull up a couple of quotes that they've made recently or a couple of charts that are relevant to the different topics that I want to get the reaction to, or if it's a chart they prepared, I want them to explain it to the audience. But I very much go into these things with a um, organic mindset. Like this is the arc I've prepared, but if this conversation decides it wants to go in a totally different direction, I'm happy to jettison what I've prepared and let it go into that direction if I think it's more interesting and more useful for the audience. So I, I think people like my interviews because, you know, because I've prepared, I generally can get more out of the guests, I can make it more of a linear journey. But like I said, if if, if halfway through, I decide that there's, there's a much more interesting destination than I thought there was going to be going in, I'm all for letting it drive itself to that that ending point. Yeah, no, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on how one's personality fits into, into their interview style. So despite most people that might think otherwise, I I tend to be more of a introvert masking around as a extrovert right and i actually don't like to, to talk to many people you know in social settings too much i tend to be more kind of internal but you know it's this is a game where you have to be out there to try to build a business do you find that being maybe an extrovert is maybe more helpful because you can create conversation on the fly or is there maybe an element of being uh, introverted for example that might make it more thoughtful because you have to really think about the questions you want to ask i think on all the myers-briggs tests and whatnot I have scored in my life as an extrovert, but I think like most people, I've, I've become more introverted as I've gotten older. You know, enjoying conversations, enjoying people lends a facility to a discussion. And, and that's one of the things that I really try to do on Wealthion is it really is intended to be a discussion between me and the guest. It's not intended to be a robot just asking some pre-canned questions and then just letting the interviewer run. Although I think a skill you develop as an interviewer is to know when to when to probe to try to draw more out of your expert and when to just shut up and let them, you know, deliver their awesomeness if they're really on a roll. But one of the things that I really try to do, which I think goes to the spirit of your question is I really do try to tap into the avatar, right? The person that's watching. And I really try to ask myself, what, what do they, what do they want to get out of this interview? And so I'm kind of known for, probing, I think in a very respectful way, but like if somebody answers my question, I usually have two or three follow-ups that I, I ask to really kind of fully flesh out their idea in a way that, that either scratches the itch of what I think the listener has in their mind, or if I think the listener wants to make a decision based upon the insight uh, of the guest, you know, what I try to do is draw out enough information that I feel like the person has enough information to make that decision that they want to make. Another thing that I do a lot of is I do a lot of summarization. So, you know, oftentimes these folks can give a four or five minute answer to a question. I will then basically repeat back to them, hopefully in 20 seconds or less, what I think I just heard them say. And they'll either say, yes, that's exactly what I meant, or, oh, no, you're, you're mistaken. I really meant, you know, X, Y, or Z. And because there's a lot of people who are watching these YouTube channels to self-educate, 
I've learned that they really appreciate that summarization because it, it really helps them kind of clarify their you know takeaways from the conversation. Okay, so now, now this is where I think it also gets to be challenging. So you want to make sure that you're presenting thoughtful information that people can self-educate on. But you and I both know there's always going to be guests that say things that you know deep down are not factually the full truth or, or completely wrong to begin with. And it's hard to sort of call that out in the moment, nor do you necessarily want to do that because, you know, you want to take the fullness of everything they're saying in context, even if they're wrong in a, in a particular moment of that interview. How, how do you think through that dynamic? Because there's always going to be – I don't want to use the term misinformation because that sounds like it's intentional. But there's always going to be people that you interview who are just saying things which is, are just not true – but you don't want to necessarily kind of point it out. Yeah, I'll say that that's not a huge problem of mine. And maybe it's just guest selection. Maybe it's just luck of the draw. There aren't too many people where I felt like I've listened to them and said, that guy's just blatantly saying something that's not true. Now, maybe I've thought, I think he's mistaken or I, I disagree with him. But in those cases, what I tend to do is first probe to, to make sure that I let the person fully express what they're trying to say. And then I'll say, and I'm sure you you have the same ability, is to say, okay, great. Well, you know, I just had these three experts on the program in the past month who actually all think very differently about that topic. You know, here's what this expert said. Here's what this expert said. What would you say? How would you react to, to their position on that? And I let them kind of defend their point of view or their conclusion based upon other people. But it's it's sort of a polite way of sort of saying, hey, your opinion's an outlier opinion. I'm giving you your chance to defend it here. And then once they have, you know, I just I just move on. Obviously, if I think they're not contributing conclusions that I think are in the best interest of my listeners, I'm, I'm not going to give them a ton of airtime. All right. Now, you had mentioned before, which I agree with you, one thing that people should consider is working with a financial advisor, which is interesting because you can argue that self-education should keep people away from advisors because they can save themselves on the fees, right, if they do that. But on the other hand, you and I both know that advisors – the, the role of an advisor is more, I'd argue, as a psychiatrist or a psychologist, right, that can keep somebody in a asset allocation strategy, think kind of clearly, at least you hope they do. How do you kind of balance those two dynamics out? You want to get people to be educated on investing in markets, but the self-directed route really isn't one for most people that tends to be that successful, right, from a longer-term wealth generation. Right. right. Yeah, and maybe we should maybe we should take a step back on this point and, and just sort of look at the American – education system, or I would say basically the Western education system, because I hear the same complaint from people in a lot of other countries, is the number one reason why we go to school is we have the, the thesis that getting an education is going to make us more successful in life. And in a lot of people's definition, that means I'm going to be able to use my education to produce more wealth than if I hadn't gone to school, right? Our education system fails us tremendously <laughs> at teaching financial literacy. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, most people have never, they've gone through thousands and thousands of hours of schooling in their life and never, never taken a class on how to take out a mortgage or, you know, how to manage debt or the basics of investing. Now, if you're, you know, a finance major, okay, maybe you got some, some classes in that, but, uh, but for the average person, they've gotten almost zero experience to this stuff and they're just sent out into the world. And then they, you know, quickly realize, oh my gosh, I just feel very vulnerable out in this world of, of having to invest my money because I don't know what I'm doing, right? Now, you couple that with the era that we live in. I think we live in a, a highly time in the markets. And um, you know, I'm sure you talk about this a lot with your guests, right? But about 
all the, the deformations that have happened in the markets over the past couple of decades with all the intervention by the central planners, and keeping interest rates way too low for too long and blowing asset bubbles and all that type of stuff. Um, and we're now at a point where the, econ the global economy is slowing fast. We still have richly valued, I would say, still you know substantially overvalued asset prices. We have a lot more volatility coming into the system. At least in the short term here, we've got a lot less uh, of the artificial life support that the markets have been on has, has, has been removed here for at least the time being. So it's just it's a really treacherous time, and investors are very under the average investor is very underprepared for this, right? So that's sort of going back to the original spirit of your question. Like that's the main role that I feel like a good financial advisor plays here is is they are the informed coach who can really help the average person here who's otherwise you know pretty unprepared for this type of environment that we're in, right? So. The question is, I almost think in, in this type of market, your job is less trying to pick the right security <laughs> to buy. And it's really more to try to pick the right coach. Right? It, it, it's been a long time since it, the investing community has had to invest for an inflationary environment. In fact, most of the people that, that were you know, active professionally the last time that we went through this they're retired or they're at the very ends of their careers. So most people who've been managing money, both institutionally, but also just for regular people, you know, regular brokers and financial advisors, they have had an ever rising tide. And if it had winded their back, it, it's been super easy. You could just throw a dart, you know, at, at uh, a stock board and, and make money with all of the support and liquidity and stimulus that's been pumped into these markets for the past many years. And so, I think you really have to find an advisor who, A, you know, either is old enough to have some experience on, on what it used to be like in, in, in the old days, and or um, one that's really been a student of the macro issues that you and your guests talk a lot about, Michael, and has been managing money for a long time, you know, keeping those, those macro risks and trends in, in mind. And so... Yeah, to your point. Yeah, you know, once you've got one, yes, their job is to a help you come up with the right portfolio plan and strategy, and then to be your your financial advisor for when those emotions really start coming into play, and you're like, oh my god, you know, the markets are beginning to fall here. What do I do? They're the ones whose job it is is to keep you on the straight and narrow. And, I, and I'll tell you, the advisors that that Wealthion has worked with, in general, have been more conservative in the year or two leading up to this year. And, you know, from the outside, it looked like, hey, you know, you guys might be missing the boat here. You know, the party's still raging. You guys are building up cash. That seems like you're going to miss the boat if you continue to do that. But I can tell you now, you know, now that we're here at the end of 2022, <laughs> that type of caution and wisdom and study of history for what might happen has paid off in spades compared to the general just sort of buy and hold, go long YOLO approach that so many other folks have taken. So, yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, I think the role of the advisor there, I think your role as the investor, unless you are very experienced and have a long track history of, of being a good self-directed investor, you're probably better focusing your efforts and trying to find the right advisor to help you navigate this, this very, you know, tumultuous environment that we're in now. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and to be fair, I will say that I think finding the right advisor can be as challenging as finding the right investment. I mean, I hear you on years of experience, but I almost feel like you also need to have an element of being a good judge of character when it comes to finding an advisor. I've presented all over the country at CFA chapters. I've met advisors my entire career, left and right. And I can tell you unequivocally, very confidently, most advisors in the industry are knuckleheads for a better way of seeing it. They tend to be sort of um, amplified versions of their own clients, meaning even worse than retail, they're momentum chasers. It's hard to find, I think, a real prudent fiduciary, even though they're supposed to be fiduciaries. It's, I find a lot of them just tend to be very good salesmen. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very true. And that's, and look, I'm not trying to talk my own book here, but that's why on the Wealthier channel, we have advisors that I have them on the channel every week so that the viewers can actually get a good sense of, of what a good like-minded financial advisor looks like. You know, the types of topics you want them knowledgeable on, the answers you want to hear to the questions that you ask. And, you know, because I have them on every week, they just, they get to see these guys' minds get picked week after week after week. So my intent there is to say, hey, look, if you want to talk to these guys, you're more than welcome to. But this is the kind of advisor that you're looking for. For. So when you go out and either talk to your existing one or you start interviewing a few new ones, you've got you know a model. All right, let me for the remaining minutes here, everybody, please mm-hmm. make sure you follow Adam Taggart here on Twitter as well as check out Wealthy on on YouTube, which again has been just utterly exploding in terms of subscribers. You can tell Adam's very thoughtful in the way that he thinks about markets and the way he interviews guests. Again, this will be available as an edited podcast on all your favorite platforms. All right, let, let's get into the market environment and then the name of the space here: practical investing. I've made this point many times before. While I think macro is obviously critical to understand, the truth is it's hard for a lot of people to implement on. Right? So it sounds like you can do and take buy and sell decisions based on some macro thesis, but I keep going back to this point that path matters more than prediction. How you get to the endpoint matters more than the actual endpoint. Talk us through how you think about how people should be using the information in their own portfolios, right, that you're presenting. I have the same challenge with my own types of guests here. How do people actually make it actionable? So first off, I think the macro is useful because it you have to sort of decide what type of future you're planning for, right? And go back to an early discussion we had, you know, like the passive invested, investing model has worked great since 08, right? There are a lot of guests on my channel right now, much smarter than I, uh, but I agree with them who say that that, that era is now over. And going forward, you know, we could very likely, like we saw in the 70s, where for 15 years, you know, it kind of goes nowhere. That doesn't mean that it's just, it, it, it just flatlines. In fact, it could be quite volatile. But you could end that period pretty much at the same place in the major indices where you started it. Right. So first, you sort of have to get comfortable with what type of environment are you planning for. Think about it almost like if you're going to take a voyage, are you expecting flat seas or rough seas? Because it'll probably depend on it, you know, your selection of, of vessel that you take. So once you've done that, then it's really about sort of you know portfolio construction. Right. So 
you know, I'm a big fan of diversification. Like there's a lot of sort of long time tested investment strategies that work pretty darn well. And what, what I think tends to happen in, in the space you and I are in, Michael, is people will sort of fall in love with a certain perspective. So like I have a lot of people who listen to my channel who are big sound money advocates of which I am, and they're really big into hard assets. And that's just all they own. They just own, you know, a ton of precious metals, maybe a couple of other funds or producers of a few other commodities, and, and that's all they're holding. And that is not a well-diversified portfolio. And so, you know, just some of the basic blocking and tackling of diversification, dollar cost averaging, position sizing, position harvesting, all that type of stuff. You can't ignore all those fundamentals. So I think you want to kind of ground your portfolio approach with kind of the best practices of, of portfolio management theory and, and history and whatnot. And then you really start, like I said, once you sort of picked sort of the macro environment that you're investing for, you know, then you start asking yourself, okay, well, then what asset classes make sense for that? Again, keeping an eye to diversification. And, you know, then ask yourself, what's the outlook for those asset classes? So let me give you a really good example of, I think, a current asset class that is an important one for for aware investors to consider right now. Bonds have, you know, bond investors have, it's been one of the easiest investments for the past 40 years, right? As interest rates have inexorably just kept coming down. So for, for bonds, you were, you were able to kind of set it and forget it in terms of just being able to plan on an appreciation in your bond portfolio. Now it's much more tricky. And interest rates have dramatically risen this year as the Fed has you know, been, been hiking. But at some point, there is highly likely going to be a pause, if not a reversal, in interest rates. And yeah, the pause is because the Fed can't continue hiking at this level for too much longer. It's been hiking at the fastest rate ever, certainly the fastest rate ever. And there's a lot of question about how high the Fed can raise interest rates without breaking something in the economy. And you know, there's, again, people smarter than I who think the Fed may have already passed that threshold. And we're just waiting for that break to manifest. So uh, the Fed will highly likely either pause relatively soon in a matter of months, maybe a quarter or two, or it could break something. And if it breaks something, it could, despite what Jerome Powell is, you know, the confidence that he's exuding and saying, I'm going to keep rates high for a long, prolonged period of time, the Fed and other central banks could be forced to pivot because something really important breaks. And we got a little bit of a preview of this, you know, the other month, right, in the UK. And so right now, bonds are a really interesting asset class. And I'm speaking mostly right now about um, US treasuries. Because they're now actually paying you a material yield, right? It's still a negative yield based on today's high rate of inflation, but CPI seems to be coming down, probably will come down more next year. And so you can, you can sit in the relative safety of a U.S. Treasury bond and get paid for it. And there's an option value to this, right? If interest rates start coming down again, um, either just because the Fed eventually gets inflation under control and starts eventually, you know, bringing rates down, or if it aggressively has to start bringing rates down because of a forced pivot, then there's an option value in these, these treasury bonds where you, you could actually get pretty substantial appreciation. So the risk return ratio on some of these bonds right now is the best it's been in a long time with some of the folks I've talked to about, talked to about this, they've said the best they've seen it in their lifetime. 
right? And most investors, most average investors, Michael, don't buy bonds. I mean, they don't really even know how to buy a bond, right? So kind of getting back to the spirit of your question, you've got to come up with both sort of the, okay, what asset classes do I think make sense given the, the portfolio strategy I'm building for the macro environment that I see? But then in the near term, what are the near term opportunities and risks where I want to dial things up and dial things down? Again, given the, the risks that we see in this market, I would highly, you know, echo many of the guests on my program who are saying, use this current rally in stocks to lighten up. If you're still long stocks, it's a time to build dry capital. It's a time to remain liquid because this bear market probabilistically is probably not over going forward. So in that type of environment, being able to put yourself into relatively liquid treasury bonds, get paid for it and have this call upside potential is pretty, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, I think that's a really good example to the spirit of your question, if I've, if I've answered it correctly, Michael, which is where, you know, if, if you're if you're listening to the macro and then trying to get to an actionable investment decision based off of it, hopefully just sort of laid out there at least one good example of how I'm hoping that people are using the content on my channel to do that. Yeah, no, and, and I would echo that. And of course, I'm biased. I mean, part of the Treasury trade is not just the idea of yield, but I want to go to something which I think is also maybe an interesting thing to think through, which is that everyone has their biases, right? I, I tend to be more of a disinflationist deflationist. My bias is to think that long-term, all this debt will resolve itself in some kind of default at some point. I don't think the inflation story is, is secular, but pretty much all guests that I have are kind of on that mindset because that's what's, what's hot now. I'm curious, just what are your biases longer term? I mean, do you think that this inflation story is, is secular or is it really just transitory and nobody defined how long transitory was? Sort of depends on the arc that you're looking at here. I'll tell you, my bias is like yours to the deflation side, meaning like if we, if all the central planners just took their hands off the system and said, look, we're just going to let the system do what it wants to do, it would deflate horribly in a heartbeat, right? There's so much debt out there. There's so much bad debt. There's so much malinvestment that, you know, it would just want to correct. There'd be tons of defaults, you know, Yields would spike for a while. It would be super painful. I, I think it would be it would be horribly painful, and I think it would be the right thing to do. I, I think we would just you know live through a couple years of, of a lot of pain, <laughs> but then the dust would settle, and we could pick things up from a much saner level, and uh, and maybe smarter thinking would prevail at that point, and we would manage things a little bit more smartly going forward. The odds of that happening, I think, are very low. <laughs> um, no, no politician wants to preside over that. No politician is going to get elected on a platform of austerity. And so you can kind of look at all the actions going on today by our central planners is an effort to stave off that organic market-driven desire to default, to, to deflate. So, you know, I kind of think, and this is going to sound a little grim, but I think that we are at a point here where defaults are going to need to happen. And it's just a matter of picking your poison, right? And like I said, I don't think that the the power structure is going to willingly choose to deflate. So I think it will always choose to inflate if it can get away with it. That's my big arc of things. So if, if I had to make a bet on this, I, I think we probably will in the long arc through currency destruction and versus through um, debt default. But you know, we'll, we'll find out. In the nearer term, I think that the economy, the global economy is slowing hard. I think that unless we return to exceptional stimulus like we saw during the pandemic, 
I think that demand is going to get destroyed enough. The supply chains are going to heal, you know, over time and whatnot, where I think that um, the the bigger problem we're going to have by the end of next year is going to be deflation, at least severe disinflation, if not deflation versus inflation. I think all the attention that, that we've rightly given inflation this year, I think is all of a sudden going to be shifted towards, well, wait a second, you know, we're entering a recession, maybe a really painful one. All the consumer demand has, has, has evaporated. All the savings that were been the extraordinary savings that were pushed through the system by all the you know emergency stimulus and stuff that's all now gone. And yeah, I think inflation will. I had to bet. I think it will prove to have been transitory. Transitory will have just been a much longer period than everybody expected. Yeah, that, that's always what what drove me crazy about the transitory back and forth noise. I mean, three years can be transitory. Even five years right. can be – even 10 years. I mean, in the context of long cycles, right, it's like, yeah, of course you have to have a set time frame to define it. But you know, a few months is not really transitory in the context of you know, large cycles. I think that's where the Fed made a, a critical error in the way they were communicating uh, what was actually happening. Now, to that point, I've made this argument before. I don't think the bear market ends until the housing bear market ends, and that's still probably pretty early. And until so – very much of a different nature than what, we, what we've seen in the past because of inventory. And I'm sure a lot of the people that are watching your interviews on YouTube, on Wealthion, you know, they take a lot of interest in the state of the housing market. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how housing plays into that. And if you find that maybe more and more people are searching for content related to uh, housing trends. Yeah, it's interesting. I ran a media company prior to Wealthion, and I found that me- that housing – was really kind of a niche interest. It was a harder topic. It was a harder economic topic to get people to, to focus on. Now I find that's the exact opposite. <laughs> people can't get enough information about it. And what I think is really important about the housing market is, is, is Michael, you know, we spend a lot of time on our channels, you know, talking about the markets and where they're going. But I actually think the housing market is much more important to the national wealth effect than the markets are. Because housing is much more widely owned. It's something like 90% of all financial assets are owned by the top 10% of households. Right. So what the stock market does on any given day doesn't really materially affect the average American that much. But you know, if they, the price of their home is fluctuating dramatically, it really impacts their sense of, of you know, what wealth they may or may not have to spend. So I think housing is really important. It also people are well, because of that, and because consumer spending is you know two thirds of, of GDP, I think it's really important to figure out where the housing puck is going. I agree with you that I think we are very much in the early stages of this. Um, in fact, I was just looking at a chart right before this interview of let's see if I can remember the metric here. It was the pull it up here. It's the average median price of a new home as a percent of median income. And the data set I'm looking at goes back to 2020, and it is by far the highest it's been in the data set by a tremendous amount. It went from around to like 25%, maybe two or three years ago, and it's now up at almost 50%. So if you look at the data set for the past 22 years, it is by far the absolute worst time to buy a house right now, right? Because you've had this tremendous move in mortgage rates, um, you know, more than doubling, in some cases almost tripling. And yet housing prices, they're beginning to nose over, but they're, they're just starting the process. And so you've got the worst of both worlds right now. You've got high debt costs, high mortgage costs, and high prices, right? So what you're seeing right now is just a, a complete 
standoff between buyers and sellers. Transactions have just plummeted, right? Because sellers don't want to sell. They don't want to bring their prices down yet to clear to, to the market clearing price. So they're sort of living in denial. And buyers are just basically looking at the data I just mentioned and saying, there's no way I'm buying a house at, at, at these prices in this market right now. And so we've got a stalemate that I think eventually is going to you know, be broken. And it's going to be broken by sellers because there's a certain amount of transactions that are just going to have to happen anyways. Right? People die, they get divorced, they lose their jobs, they have to move, you know, whatever. And there's an early mover advantage in that space. Right. Right now, the sellers are all trying to you know, remain steady and say, OK, guys, if none of us sells, we'll, we'll protect the, the value the market value of our homes. But eventually somebody's going to say, well, look, I think I might need to sell. And if I do, it's better I get out now. Right. I can I can drop my home price by five or 10 percent and still get 90 percent of the value for it rather than you know being one of the last guys out the door and maybe having to sell at a much further reduced price. So at some point here, relatively soon, that dam is going to break. And I just don't see any fundamentals in the next year or so coming to rescue that market. I just think the economy is going to get even worse. I think layoffs are going to layoff volumes already beginning to pick up. But I think it's I think it's if we have the recession, I think we're going to have I think volumes are going to be much higher than they've been for the past bunch of years. And I just I don't see unless Powell breaks something and we have to have you know, the Fed reintervened, bringing into pushing interest rates back down again, which if it does, that's not going to be for, for bullish reasons for the economy. I just don't see housing getting rescued from what I see as a, as a very overdue correction from the worst housing asset price bubble we've yet had in our history. Yeah. And, and the challenge, of course, there is, again, the inventory issues are so tight. I had Bill Pulte on uh, a couple of days ago. And uh, unless you end up having a reduction of municipal red tape and and all these regulations home builders don't really have too much of an incentive to try and go through the process of of building homes with higher rates and then on top of that bureaucratic nonsense so you do have this kind of issue where yet yeah, prices have to come back down affordability has to come back in but the pace at which housing i think kind of goes down will be very different than what we've seen in the past um, almost like a to your point, kind of a steady to equilibrium until something breaks and then the waterfall happens. I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. And and I, I have not listened to your interview with, with Bill Pulte. I'll actually go do that after we uh, we finish up here because it's a lot of really interesting debate on in terms of the true nature of housing inventory. You know, some people have said, oh, there's no way the housing market's going to correct because there's such a shortage of inventory. There's a lot of people taking the other side of that argument. And whatever the truth is, I just think the important thing to remember with housing is that it is priced at the margin, right? You only need a couple of homes in a, in a market to move to reset the asset value for all homes in that market. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. Everybody here, please, again, please make sure you follow Adam Taggart and, of course, check out Wealthy on, on YouTube. Let's maybe kind of wrap up this space with just from your experience, what are other practical ways that people should think about when it comes to investing beyond the idea of trying to find the right coach or advisor, self-education, what are the things do you think people should be paying attention to? Now, in my case, whenever somebody asks me, what should I do to learn more or to get better? My response is always the same. Pick up any and every book related to behavioral finance, which you kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, Adam. Yeah. Uh, but but what other things should people be considering? Boy, you just ask great questions, Michael. <laughs> well, I think sort of do a, a similar vein. I don't think there's such a thing as sort of too much education, too much knowledge. And I'm, I'm a little bit biased as being a content creator in this space. But we, we live in a golden age for the self-educator. 
There is so much phenomenal content that's available in large part for free these days where you can go on programs like yours or mine or many others that are out there and hear directly from the folks that are basically running the system and hear what they think, you know, the decisions they're making, you know, the processes that they're going through. So I, I, I definitely would encourage people to obviously listen to programs like yours and mine and many others that interview these folks to, you know, self-educate and, and you know, either in the old days, I would have said, read a bunch of books, but uh, what's Ray Dalio's series that he's put out there? Principles, is it Principles on Investing? Yeah, that's right. Which are just great, you know, highly well-produced, you know, educational series that really ground the average person in just sort of the, the fundamentals of understanding how economies and markets work and whatnot, right? And of course, as you as you, you know, begin to get that initial, master those initial foundational bits of information, you know, then there's other deeper folks that you can go into. And the best way to get exposure to them is to feel deeply into it. You know, that's one of the wonderful things about the internet in general, but also like you were talking about Twitter, right? Like, but let's say you just listened to an interview with, I don't know, you know, Kyle Bass, right? And you say, gosh, I think that guy's really interesting. Well, you know, not only can you read every interview, see every interview and read every article that Kyle's been mentioned in, but you can actually go to his Twitter feed and you can crawl inside that guy's mind on a daily basis. And maybe if you're lucky, he'll engage with you on Twitter if you ask a question. So I guess I would just say sort of like a being ferociously fearless in terms of your content consumption and your, your willingness to try to... Re- just steep yourself in the thinking of, of of the thinkers that resonate most with you. You've got more access and more opportunity to do that than you've had at, at any other time in history. I also, if I can too, as we kind of wrap up here, there are some free resources that we put together at Wealthion that I think might be of interest to folks that are listening here. So I'm just going to mention a couple of URLs that folks can go to if they're interested. We talked about kind of the, the special moment in history that we're at for bonds. And a lot of Average investors, they don't feel like they understand bonds well because bonds are a little mathy. And really, folks, they're just a little mathy. It's really not that hard. But it does take a little while to kind of wire your brain to think the way that bonds work. So if you want to understand how bonds work and then get a good understanding of how to you know, apply that uh, towards actually potentially making some trades in bonds of the type that Michael and I were talking about earlier, go to Wealthion.com slash bonds where there's a free webinar that we put on a few weeks back with Mike Leibowitz from Real Investment Advice, where Mike just basically gives a great Bonds 101 seminar. We did a a similar thing with the same organization, Real Investment Advice, around retirement planning. That's a topic you and I didn't get into, Michael, but just from a societal standpoint, we have a tremendous percentage of this society that is uh, aging and heading towards their retirement years but do not have the financial means to actually retire. And that's going to raise a a lot of major issues. And I think it's a big reason why people listen to your program and mine is because these are people that are trying not to become part of the, what I think the the majority who are going to be hitting retirement age without the ability to actually retire. So if you're interested in learning about retirement planning strategies, go to wealthion.com slash retirement planning. Again, that's another multi-hour webinar on all the topic, all the major topics that you should consider with a lot of good recommendations on, you know, for each individual strategy, how to go apply that in this type of market that we're in when there's a lot of uncertainty, something that we have prioritized in the financial advisors that we bring on our channel to talk to people is people that have a strong expertise in risk management 
And our advisors tend to often use options as a way to hedge their portfolios. I know we've heard a lot in recent years about people buying options as a highly speculative instrument, buying Tesla calls and stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about using options as a protective element for your portfolio, the same way that you would buy, say, fire insurance on your house. It's a very interesting category. Um, Again, it can be pretty complex, which is why most people don't trade into that space. But I think it's important, even if you don't decide to do this in practice yourself, you definitely want to work with an advisor who knows how to use options to put insurance on your portfolio. And uh, and this seminar, again, explains sort of the basics of how that works, enough so that you can have an intelligent conversation with your advisor. That's wealthyon.com slash options planning. I'm going to mention two two last ones, Michael, and then I'll wrap up. One is we didn't get super into the, the risk of layoffs coming next year. But as I mentioned briefly earlier, I think the risk is concerningly high for folks that work for you know a paycheck. It, it looks like we're entering an environment next year where you know the odds of companies laying off in mass is going to be much higher than it's been in previous years. And so if you work for a paycheck, there are steps that you can take now in advance of potentially getting surprised by a layoff that will greatly reduce your vulnerability to it. And there are certainly steps you should take if you show up at work one day to learn that you become victim of a layoff. There are steps you you should take immediately upon learning that news. We have all those uh, in a free report at wealthion.com slash layoffs. So when you asked me at the very beginning of this conversation, Michael, you know, what do we do at Wealthion? You know, we try to give people exposure to the insights of the key experts who understand uh, how the economy and the markets work. But then we also try to make that as actionable as possible by driving them towards information or solutions that can help them put those insights into practice. That's why I'm kind of dialing through these resources is because, again, at the end of the day, we're all about people trying to take action based on this information because information in and of itself doesn't have value. It's only the application of that information is where you create the value. Very well said. Again, please make sure you follow Adam. Check out Wealthy on on YouTube. I give you a lot of credit, Adam. I'm I'm similar, I think, in the way that you are in that even if I'm sick, I will still do interviews. So I appreciate you you pushing through on this. Thank you everybody for joining and uh, I'll see you next time. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.